The time is now. Volume 7, episode 129. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. Artificial intelligence is not only one of the hottest issues, as I've been saying, but it's also one of those issues about which you can talk from a whole lot of different angles. Well, this is part two of a very quick two-part episode on artificial intelligence and employment law. In our last episode, I was honored to have EEOC Commissioner Keith Sonderling come on to the podcast to talk about AI from the angle of anti-discrimination laws and talk about what the EEOC has done, what the EEOC plans to do when it comes to enforcing its anti-discrimination laws in the context of artificial intelligence tools used by employers to make employment-related decisions. Well, in today's part two, we're going to talk about the issue of artificial intelligence and employment law from the perspective of an economist. And I am honored to be joined today by Dr. Christine Pollack, who has a very, very impressive uh, resume. She received her BS in economics from MIT. She also received a master's degree in economics from New York University. And if that wasn't all enough, received her PhD in economics from George Mason University. Dr. Pollack is a principal of the Brattle Group, where she serves as a consulting and a testifying expert in complex litigation requiring the application of economic, financial, and statistical analysis to legal and regulatory issues. She focuses her practice on valuation, tax controversies, and of course, labor and employment law. Among her recent assignments, she has served as an expert witness on behalf of the United States Department of Justice and also provided economic analysis for the Massachusetts Trial Court Child Support Guidelines Task Force. So who better than to give us an economic view, an economist's view, of artificial intelligence and its use by employers than Dr. Pollack? Dr. Pollock, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I really appreciate it. We've, we've gotten some really good perspectives uh, from folks in our last episode, which I have referred to as part one of this two-part AI series. We had an EEOC uh, commissioner, uh, Keith Sonderling, who has done so much in the AI field and was uh, able to give us some really great perspective on the legal side of things, particularly from the EEOC's perspective and 
how the uh, uh, anti-discrimination laws uh, all apply to this area. So I'm really happy to have you here uh, to answer, I guess, some of the legal but non-legal aspects of this as well. Uh, before we get into it, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and what got you first involved with artificial intelligence? Sure. Let me start by saying, um, and your introduction is uh, kind of very appropriate. I'm an economist. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a computer scientist. But <laughs> that being said, I'm someone who has always been very curious about the development of new technology. Um, as a child in the 70s, I would pester my computer who would spend his weekends tinkering with a computer in the basement. And then in the 90s, I was um, at MIT studying economics, which was, you know, a very exciting place to be when the internet was just emerging and instant messaging communication was becoming um, sort of mainstay in how we work and interact together. So in any case, I've always been interested in technology, but um, professionally as an economist, I'm fascinated with the potential of artificial intelligence to revolutionize the way we work and how we produce goods and services and how we create value for society. Um, as you probably are well aware, AI is a huge market. Uh, in 2021, it was estimated to be worth over $60 billion and ex it's expected to grow to well over $400 billion in 2028. Um, just the other day, an AI startup company called Anthropic announced a $5 billion four-year plan to compete wow. against OpenAI's chatbot with its own chat GPT-like AI assistant um, named Claude Next. And so because, you know, the use and development of AI is growing so rapidly, all sorts of interesting and challenging issues are being raised that require economic analysis. So this interest led me to collaborate with a colleague of mine, Shastri Sandy. Um, together, we authored some thought pieces that discussed the disparate impact of AI. And I believe these articles are what brought me to the podcast here today. Oh, no, absolutely. Seeing your, uh, your name out there and some really great discussion out there. And I was so happy to uh, get you to agree to come on to the podcast. You know, I mean, I can't remember you mentioned the Internet and, and, and all of that and 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 instant messaging. I don't even really remember a time when we didn't have the internet and instant messaging. So it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. But it's hard to really anticipate what the changes will be from these types of technologies. No question. And when people think about uh, economists, they sort of think about them in terms of, at least for purposes of labor and employment law, you know, doing damages analyses in, in various discrimination cases or other types of cases. I don't know that many people tie together economists with technology and technology-based issues. It's, it's fascinating. Well, certainly technology, you know, has a major potential to disrupt how we work and impact people's lives. And, you know, certainly damages and valuation are, are among the issues that it will spark. Great. And before we get into uh, some of that, I just want to also uh, dot the I and cross the T on uh, your group, the Brattle Group. Tell us a little bit about the Brattle Group and your role with the company. Sure. Um, I'm a principal at the Brattle Group, and we're a consulting firm that's uh, global. We have offices all over the world, and we provide primarily litigation support and expert testimony in economics, finance, regulation um, to corporations, law firms, and public agencies. So, you know, as you kind of mentioned in practice, this ultimately means I use statistical qualitative analyses to examine the economic impact of business decisions, particularly where that impact is not very clear or subject to some dispute or uncertainty. 
Great. So let's get into uh, the AI field a little bit here. I think by now, many of us understand that AI is likely here to stay and uh, that it's being used in conjunction with employment-related decisions in a number of forms, certainly in increasing numbers. I think some people out there, however, are still not entirely clear on what we mean by AI. Um, what do you mean when you talk about AI? What are you referring to? Yeah, AI is a sort of a, a broad term. And for me, I try to think about it um, just in simple terms that it's really a computer program that uses data and algorithms to make decisions or predictions that typically people like you and I humans would make. It's been around for years. Um, and as the cost of computing has fallen and availability of data has risen, it's the technology has really been advancing rapidly. Um, I think back to the computer program that be the world chess champion, Gary Kasparov right. in 1997. That's an example of AI. Um, you know, and of course, when you're just doing some of your, your daily chores, if you're booking a flight, you're usually operating and interacting with an AI that's telling you what price you're going to pay for the flight. And when you're on the plane, the AI system is assisting the pilot that's flying the plane. So it's, it's all around us. And, uh, of course, now everyone's talking about chat GPT, the text-based AI chatbot that generates human-like prose. Um, and so, you know, there's tons of use applications and, uh, interactions we have with AI in our day to day, but most relevant to this podcast, it's clear that companies are relying on AI models and making employment related decisions. Um, surveys indicate that one in four organizations are using automation or artificial intelligence to support human resource related activities, including recruiting and hiring. Um, some companies are typically using AI to post job openings, search through resumes, and evaluate candidates. And some companies even rely on AI during the interviewing stage, using it to analyze applicants' facial expressions, um, evaluate how they're making eye contact, and what words they're choosing in answering interview questions. So it's really pervasive. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Uh, in terms of the uh, employment decisions uh, for which companies are using AI tools. We're not just talking about hiring and recruitment. This is being used much more broadly, correct? Yeah, for sure. Employers are using AI for more just recruiting, more than just recruiting and selecting their workforce. It's really actually being used to help manage the workforce as well. Um, it can use, it can be used to predict when workers will quit, um, to help employers make decisions about promotion, and um, often to monitor employees. There's a few examples that you may have heard of or may be sort of in the public sphere around um, companies using AI to monitor their employees. One is Instacart, a grocery delivery platform um, that reportedly uses AI to monitor its workers and calculate metrics around the speed um, of them filling up their shopping list. Um, also, UPS is known to use AI to monitor and report on driver safety and productivity by tracking driver movement. And, you know, other companies may use AI to track employee login times, monitor when employees are paying attention to their computer screens. They might use webcams and eye tracking software. So there's a lot of use cases beyond just recruiting and hiring. So, yeah, takeaway, and that's great. Takeaway is that uh, more and more employers are using AI, more and more are using it for reasons beyond hiring and recruitment. So the point really is let's figure out how to do this the right way and not sort of cause more problems that we were trying to avoid in the first place by using AI. Exactly. Yeah. So when we talk about some of the legal risks uh, with using AI, what are we talking about? 
Um, well, there's a number of legal risks associated with using AI, and uh, you and your audience are probably well aware rules and regulations around the use of AI tools are really being developed and debated. And there's a lot of uncertainty uh, around wherever this will go. And kind of interestingly, I don't know if you heard about the sort of call for a six-month pause on the development of AI that happened um, not too long ago. So we're really kind of trying to understand what the risks and the, the benefits of AI um, can be. But um, the risks that we're familiar, that I am more familiar with, tend to relate around privacy, patent law, copyright law, and, you know, the area we're talking about today, um, the, the risk that AI can introduce unintended discriminatory practices that violate existing rules and regulations. You know, AI is a tool that generally learns by extracting patterns from data rather than, you know, having a programmer decide what factors to use in their model and weighing them kind of with a, a, a sort of their own discretion. The decision models are learning from the data themselves. And as a result, they can be complex and opaque and difficult for people to interpret. And so because of this, relying on AI models tends to make that Relying on AI models that make decisions can tend to introduce bias, unintended bias. And so unlike when we talk about disparate treatment, which occurs when a protected class member is intentionally treated differently than others, um, unintentional bias or disparate impact can occur when a seemingly neutral practice or model disproportionately impacts a protected class. Yeah, and so I mean, what are, what are some examples of AI resulting in a disparate impact? I mean, what are we talking about? Yeah, I have a few examples that I can bring to the table here. So um, I'll go on a little bit on them, and you know, if, if feel free to interrupt because I I have kind of you know stories up my sleeve. Um, <laughs> but you know, just to like reiterate, the AI models are trained with data. They can use resumes, pictures, sale report, sales reports. Um, the modeler will specify the model that trains on this data, and the model learns from the data, and it finds patterns to make predictions. So over time, the programmer will tweak the model, um, change the parameters, try to make the results more accurate. And um, so, you know, really, this fundamentally requires a lot of data, and the performance of the model is really a function of the quality, the objectivity, and the size of the data that is used to train or teach the model. So AI bias might sneak in unintentionally, um, not because the modeling itself, but because of the data that it uses to train itself. Um, so there's a couple of sort of cases where we tend to find that there's bias outcomes, and that's when the data, there's limitations with the data. So like a simple example might be if you trained your model to recognize a family that is happy based on stereotypical straight couples, pictures and images of happy families um, with a male and a woman sort of in your, your traditional gender roles. And then if you try to apply that algorithm outside of that, say to a same gender couple and determine whether that couple was happy, the algorithm may just not know how to evaluate that because it hasn't had the data um, to, to learn from. So it might incorrectly assign them as unhappy. 
And, you know, there's a well-known case of this happening um, using a program or a system that was developed by Amazon in 2014. Um, Amazon developed this automated hiring system that uh, used historical resumes to train its models. So it used about 10 years worth of resumes from past applicants. And of course, most of the applicants that the training model saw were men because historically men apply and get hired in the technology sector more often than women. So when they tried to apply the model um, to uh, evaluate candidates for their jobs, the 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 result was this: the system was discriminatory. Um, the tool attributed a lower score to resumes of people who attended women's colleges or played on women's chess teams, and Amazon had to stop using that tool because the outcome was so disparate. Uh, another example is. Uh, a case of an AI implemented automatic image cropping system that was used by Twitter. Um, so people started to complain that they were using this feature that would crop the pictures and it seemed to favor showing the, the, the white people in the preview of the tweets. Twitter eventually investigated and determined that the model was trained to accommodate whiteness and they ultimately abandoned the technology. So we have this one category that's kind of like the data isn't complete. The model doesn't really know how to treat sort of the state of the world that it hasn't seen, and that can cause a problem. But then there's this other category that's called um, proxy variables that kind of falls in this category of use of proxy variables. So when models rely on variables that are correlated with a protected class, they can also cause problems. So, you know, I have another example here. <laughs> that I'll share. With and this you. is only as good as or as bad as, uh, you know, the person who is inputting the data and the data itself. Right. Yeah. We're just, this is, um, you know, sort of the data that's available, the data that's used and the caution and care that's, um, sort of implemented in deciding what data to use really can affect the outcome of the model. And sometimes you may not be, you don't know what you don't know until you're, you're sort of using the model. And this example that I have, um, around Amazon again, I think it's another case where, you know, it just kind of had this unintended outcome. And it's not really known until you're using the model in practice that you see sort of some of the results are not working kind of as well as you would like. Um, so in this case, this is a case around uh, Amazon, as I mentioned, and they decided to use a model to figure out what neighborhoods to include and exclude in its same day prime delivery system. So, you know, you have this feature where you can get the product from Amazon on the same day. Um, so in doing this, the model kind of took a lot of parameters to um, to learn what, what zip codes would be, what areas would be useful to or profitable to, to deliver at. Um, they considered whether the zip code had a number of prime members, whether it was near a warehouse, whether there were people available to deliver to that zip code. And none of these, you know, had anything around a protected class in them. Um, but because we do find that neighborhoods still do exhibit segregation, the model ended up basically using zip code as a proxy for race. And so the, the model determined, you know, that a lot of these African-American neighborhoods would not be included in the prime program. So ultimately, when Amazon discovered this, they didn't honor the program, they expanded their prime offering, and, you know, couldn't apply that model in this case. So that's, again, another example where, you know, it's not intentional, but it's just an outcome or an artifact of the data um, that, that there's some disparate income that disparate outcome that that happens.
So again, takeaway here, uh, you know, don't assume that because you're using an AI tool that it's going to be free of discrimination, uh, either, you know, disparate impact or otherwise. We need to uh, look at what the data is, certainly what the training is, who the person is who's inputting the data. But at the end of the day, we also need to look at what's being produced by this AI tool. Um, exactly. Yeah, you need to sort of not only just make sure you have good training data, but also robustness tests and 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 sort of your the outside of the training data where you're going to apply those um, decisions to to make sure that nothing unexpected happens. So let's get to that part of the equation, I guess, from from the economist standpoint. And I'm assuming for the moment that the discrimination, if there is any, it is unintentional. So what type of analyses are used then to evaluate whether there are instances of discrimination generated by AI tools that may ultimately run afoul of anti-discrimination laws? I've, I've heard about statistical analysis, qualitative analysis. What kinds of analyses do you perform as an economist to determine uh, if we've got uh, unintentional discrimination coming from these AI tools? Yeah, so these tools, as you mentioned, are statistical tools and econometric tools, as well as qualitative analyses. And, and they're not, you know, particularly unique to uh, discriminatory practices with it that with the use of AI models you know any kind of black box model any decision making pattern um, we might want to evaluate using statistical analysis or qualitative analysis the outcomes um, so those are, are both very good and useful categories that we uh, look to when we want to evaluate whether there's a pattern of discriminatory treatment or impact. And how do they work? How how would a statistical um, or a qualitative analysis help determine whether there is um, instances of discrimination generated by an AI tool? Yeah, so one well-known, somewhat well-known way to evaluate disparate impact is called the so the so-called four-fifths rule. Um, this is kind of, I think, a rule of thumb that's not necessarily that um, statistically challenging, but it certainly gives you a good sense uh, about whether there's some disparate impact in your decision-making um, outcomes. So this is a rule of thumb that looks at differences in selection rates. And for example, if you're hiring 10% of the men that are applying for a particular role, then the four-fifths rule says that you should be hiring at least 8% of the women who are applying. You know, you want to look for the proportional rates and make sure that there's nothing particularly um, different there. Now, so there may be some valid business justifications for hiring relatively more men than women. For example, the skills that are required to do the job might be more commonly held by men. There also may not be enough data to, to determine whether observed differences in the selection rates are systemic issues and not just randomness. So this rule, the four-fifths rule, has a lot of limitations. And so when, as economists or other statisticians look at the data, we look for other more complex methods to, that can control for factors that might justify differences in hiring rates and help determine whether these outcomes are in fact persistent over time or across different subsets of the population. And those are things like regressions and statistical tests that, you know, I, I won't bore you with today. 
<laughs> so, I mean, obviously, and I'm talking with uh, Dr. Christine Polek um, from the Brattle Group, uh, who was really uh, helping us and, and giving us some really insightful information, uh, a lot, most of which is on the non-legal side here and how employers can help themselves uh, by looking at the AI tools that they're using and the results of using those AI tools and making sure that we're not running afoul of the kinds of anti-discrimination laws that uh, EEOC Commissioner Sondling talked about in our last episode. But employers don't know what they don't know. Um, so, you know, when would you typically come into the practice? When would your team or the process, I should say, when, when would your team typically come into the process if an employer says, hey, I want to have these uh, kind of analyses done to make sure that we're doing something uh, right? Yeah, so typically, you know, we're, we're a client services type of company, so we're always happy to come in um, when any businesses or attorneys or regulators have any questions about the um, significant and extents of potential disparate impact that might be occurring, you know, with any of these AI modeling um, decision-making outcomes. So we would be brought in um, to help determine the patterns that might bring concern to determine whether these patterns that you might be seeing that are bringing concern are simply just random outcomes or evidence of a more systemic issue. And what would you, and I meant to ask you this before, but, you know, having dealt with these issues and being involved a little bit in the business community, certainly, uh, is there one biggest or are there a few biggest common misconceptions that the business community still has about AI generally? Yeah, I mean, I think, on that topic, you know, kind of the misconceptions, as I mentioned, there's really a lot of confusion and interest around, you know, what is the benefits? What are the limitations of AI? What are the risks? Um, you know, there's a lot of potential benefit in terms of productivity and economic growth, but also a lot of risks in terms of inequality, um, market power, uh, you know, kind of um, innovation and employment issues. So, you know, kind of in understanding those risks and limitations, there's a big debate, um, you know, kind of being very careful about, uh, you know, sort of just understanding that AI can be very helpful. It can, like I said, it can help you pick out your show that you're watching. It can help check my work and make sure my work is reliable, but there's really limitations and risks. So business as well as, you know, users like us have to just continually evaluate the, the these benefits and compare them against the risks. And so a company comes to you and uh, wants your help as an economist or, or to provide uh, consulting or perspective from the economist standpoint, um, what are the early stages of that looking like in order for you to perform your analysis? What do you do? Do you look at the tools themselves? Do you interview people? You're looking at documents. What are the kinds of, I guess, first steps uh, that you are working with the client uh, to be able to perform this kind of analysis you've been talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, the the, the goal we have is trying to put ourselves in the, our client's shoes and understand, you know, what the decision-making model, the AI model is attempting to do, what's the benefit of it, how did they come to this decision, and how did they, you know, sort of make sure that they were 
sort of doing their due diligence. So uh, we would evaluate everything along the way, the training data, the auditing process, and the decision outcomes. You know, the first thing we would do is look for statistical evidence, the, the type of analyses we just talked about before, to establish whether, you know, there's a real pattern of unintentional discrimination that's that does exist, that if we do see that in the data, is that robust? Is that something to be concerned about? Um, so we would look at the data, the company's data, and in some instances, we might supplement that data with publicly available information around labor force conditions and other economic conditions that impact business outcomes. Um, so once we've kind of got the data side all carried, tied up nicely and, and reviewed, then we would start to do more of a qualitative review Um talk to people who made the decisions, make sure we understand the steps and the the, the considerations that were taken to mitigate um, any biased outcomes. So this might require us to speak with or interview decision makers at the company, review the documents that have been produced over time to that reflect that that due diligence and and sort of that way we can become part of the, you know, arbitrator understanding how these decisions were made and translate that. Um, to the company and the people that are interested in evaluating the outcomes. And so as far as takeaways go, uh, if we wanted to leave the listeners with something, what what should employers be thinking about and doing right now uh, as we talk about uh, AI and, um, you know, reviewing AI tools from an economist standpoint to make sure we're doing these things, these things right? Yeah, so I, like you, I'm kind of watching how the regulations are evolving. What are, what are the rules that are being, being put in place? And there seems to be a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, as I mentioned, it's kind of a very difficult kind of modeling exercise to really get, look under the hood and understand. So it's important for organizations to be transparent about the data and algorithms that they use and evaluate and perform the evaluate and test the performance of the models. Um, So I think, you know, documentation, just transparency, those are all things that help, you know, sort of understand, help an analyst like myself or a regulator or a client understand sort of what are the risks and the benefits of uh, applying these AI models in, you know, employment decisions. And if you're working with an AI vendor, you can ask them about their use of proxy data or what they do to minimize um, bias by training their model and the training of their model. Um, so yeah, documentation. I think most people would agree that employers, nobody wants to use AI tools that discriminate, um, and having records of the efforts that have been made to minimize and manage the risk of such outcomes is beneficial. So that's always helpful from my standpoint. As I said, when we come in and try to kind of tell the story of, of how this, you know, sort of how this data may have accidentally led to discrimination or may not actually be doing that, um, more information is always helpful. That's a great point. And as employment lawyers, we talk all the time with clients about documentation and the process. And when you're going through a particular decision with an employee or a termination, having that documentation as support for your decision is really so helpful to be able to articulate, hey, I went through this process in good faith. I did all of these steps um, before I was uh, acting. And, and it sounds like that's sort of what you're um, suggesting that folks do as well when it comes to their AI process, document what their process is and how they've gone through each of the steps as well. Exactly. And especially because those AI models don't really explicitly say why they 
you know, have the outcomes they do, um, having an understanding of the business, the business decisions behind it, that really helps us to intuit what the models, you know, trying to do and why it might be beneficial and, and just, justified overall. So you think we're going to be seeing as we get into uh, the heart of 2023 and beyond, you, you think that this is going to be a much busier field for you the next couple of years as employers and, as I said, in increasing numbers use AI for employment decisions? I think certainly. I mean, we're seeing a few instances where there's been a little more inquiry and oversight. You know, the, the amount of data that we have available to us, it's used in not just, you know, decisions about hiring, but pay. Um, you know, it's just inevitable. So it's certainly an, an exciting um, area to be kind of following and, and be involved with. Uh, terrific. I totally agree with you. Um, Dr. Christine Polek um, from the Brattle Group, really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. This has been terrific. Um, I know there'll be a lot more to follow and uh, would love to have you back on again sometime. Thank you. I appreciate your uh, having me. It's really enjoyable. Well, I hope you enjoyed both of these back-to-back episodes, part one with EEOC Commissioner Keith Sonderling, and this part two with Dr. Christine Polek, principal of the Brattle Group. We will continue to monitor all developments when it comes to artificial intelligence and how it impacts how employers conduct their business. We will also continue to monitor all things labor and employment law because, well, that's what we do here at Employment Law Now. I hope all of you and your families and your colleagues and your friends continue to stay healthy and safe. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.